Well, it's good to be here this morning. I didn't have the greatest start. Allison is working today, so I had to dress myself. And uh, typically for December, I look for my sweaters, and I've got this red sweater I've worn before. But I said, no, not this year, because I've been told many times that I look like Bob the Tomato from the Veggie Tales when I wear it. So I thought, well, why not put on this shirt with these pants? Jack kind of looked at me suspiciously as we drove to church this morning. Pastor Al, who I love for his encouraging nature, told me that I looked like a dork. <laughs> my daughter said, wow, Dad, daring, denim on denim. And my son-in-law of only three weeks suggested I look like a hillbilly. So, <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you. Anyways, I will never win any awards for my fashion, so <laughs> let's preach. Uh, Anyways, I wanted to begin this morning by asking a question. Have you ever received an invitation to participate in the extraordinary? Uh, An opportunity that you never dreamed or expected? uh, uh, Something that you can't even understand why you were even considered? An invitation that you look at it and you go, who, me? Like, this is really for me? Uh, For me, I can think of times in my life where I've received those kind of invitations, and and people in my family have received those kind of invitations. Uh, When I played high school rugby, I I got an invitation to play for a touring Scottish rugby team, which I probably shared before, uh, a Division A team from Scotland, uh, and they called my coach and asked if I would fill in because one of their players had got hurt. Uh, I'm sure my brother felt the same way back in high school when his band was chosen to play uh, in front of Queen Elizabeth. Uh, My daughter, Lauren, who's here, uh, she was invited to participate in the law program uh, at Trent and ended up going across the sea and and, uh, bringing this wonderful son-in-law back with her who thinks I look like a hillbilly. Uh, And uh, the the list goes on and on and on uh, of invitations to participate in the extraordinary. And the one thing about those kind of invitations, and maybe you can think of your own invitation that you've uh, received, is how you respond to that invitation can change your life forever. I was uh, reading an article this past week uh, on American Idol, the, the TV reality show that's been around for quite some time. And it was talking about how American Idol has taken some very unknown, ordinary people and turned them into celebrities. And of course, Carrie Underwood and Kelly Clarkson and Clay Aiken, and and there's a number of other names that were mentioned. And just talk about the fact that they they tried out for this show as relatively nobodies uh, and were invited to Hollywood Week. And from there, these seemingly nobodies have become household names. Uh, And the article went on to say that there's all sorts of examples beyond American Idol of celebrities and musicians and athletes who were discovered maybe on YouTube or were discovered on an obscure playing field or playing music in some uh, bar or or karaoke place. And they were discovered and they were invited to make something great of themselves. And they said yes And the rest is history. Proof that how we respond to invitations to participate in the extraordinary 
can change our life forever. This morning, we're continuing uh, in our Misfit series, and if you saw the update for this week, you probably uh, noticed that we are doing Misfits in Scripture Christmas edition, Uh, and you may have thought, well, that's kind of strange. How are we going to continue this series into the Christmas season, and is that really something that we want to focus on? And maybe your mind went to, and I got I to be honest, I don't think I've ever watched this show in its entirety, uh, but Brian Miller suggested the Island of Misfit Toys be something that maybe we could somehow tie into our sermon series. And I know Brian's got the ability to tie in a cartoon into the Christmas narrative, but I don't think I do. But I flipped the channel on the TV this week, and there Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer cartoon was on, and the two minutes that I watched were of Rudolph and Hermie the Elf singing the Misfit song, and I thought, maybe God is trying to tell me something here. And so I listened to the song in its entirety, and of course, you know that Rudolph, because of his red nose, was rejected by his peers, so he finds himself on this island of misfit toys, and he meets Hermie the Elf, who doesn't want to make toys like the other elves. He wants to be a dentist, I think it is. And so he's on the island of misfit toys, and there's, there's a doll without a nose, I think, and there's not a jack-in-the-box. There's a Charlie in the box. Don't worry, we're not going to be focusing on that this month. To be honest, what we were going to do is carry the misfit theme up to last week, and then we were going to do something different Uh, for Christmas. And so if you remember, and hopefully you remember, what we've been doing with the Misfits theme is that each week we've been looking at how the, uh, the black sheep, the ostracized, the ordinary, the unexpected um, uh, individuals of scripture have been used by God to impact this world. How God has reached out to them, has saved them, has transformed them, and used them to build his kingdom and to grow his kingdom and to move his plan of salvation forward. Uh, and so we were going to stop that and we we're going to do a Christmas theme of something. And then we all just sat and looked at each other and said, but all the characters, or pretty well all the characters in the Christmas narrative fit the bill of a misfit. In fact, Mary and Joseph and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna and the shepherds and two years later, the wise men, but they kind of get squeezed into the story as well. All of them received an invitation to participate in the extraordinary. And their response changed their lives forever and actually changed the course of history forever. And this morning, I want to begin by looking at Mary. Mary, a young teenager, planning her wedding, looking forward to a simple, poor life with her husband-to-be, Joseph. When all of a sudden, God crashes into the scene of Mary's life and invites her to participate in something that's so extraordinary, so shocking, that it's almost unbelievable. And yet Mary's response to that invitation would change her life 
forever and would change the course of history forever. But why Mary? What qualified Mary for such an extraordinary invitation? And what can we learn from her response to this invitation? I want you to turn uh, in your Bible to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to look at the the verses that uh, are just before uh, what Linda has read for us uh, already. And I'm just going to slowly work our way uh, through our text and, and, and comment and, and, and offer some thoughts as we go. So Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Verse 26 says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, the virgin's name was Mary. What do we know about Mary? Luke tells us a little bit about Mary. In one of the other gospel accounts, we learn a bit more about Mary. And there's a few other spots that we learn and glean a few things about Mary. But we don't know a whole lot about Mary. We know that her father was Eli. She had a sister named Salome. She was a relative of Elizabeth. She was young. She was poor. She was a devout believer in God, and she was in love. Luke tells us some some really important things that help us to to create a backdrop to what's going to take place in this passage. And I think with the Christmas narrative, we hear it so often, we read it so often, we have it read to us so often, it's so easy to just fly through the text and not capture the feeling and the emotion that Luke, in this case, wants us to understand. What's taking place? What's the setting? And so there's some very important things that we have to understand about Mary. And the first thing is she's young. Uh, Most scholars figure that Mary would have been between the age of 12 and 19. So let's kind of hit it in the middle and we'll say, Mary was 16 years old. And it says she was pledged to be married to Joseph. And I don't want to take the time to go into the cultural significance of being pledged and and what that looked like. Other than to say, let's just say it's pretty close to our equivalent of being engaged. They were going to get married. They were planning their big day Uh, at this point. Mary lived at home with her parents. Joseph lived at home, uh, I'm assuming, with his parents. Uh, they, they lived apart. They wouldn't come together until after their wedding day. And so this was, this was exciting times. This was happy times. There was lots of planning. They were looking forward to what's going to take place. But they didn't live together. And one thing that Luke wants us to understand, and, and some people try to, to clean up the text and try to change the meaning of what Luke is telling us, Mary was a virgin. Three times Luke tells us that Gabriel went to see the virgin and the virgin name was Mary. And then there's a third time. Mary had not had sexual experiences, sexual relations. She hadn't had intercourse. She was a virgin. And so that's the backdrop. We have this young teen girl looking forward to her wedding, her future life with 
her husband to be Joseph. It would be a simple life. It would be a poor life. She was a devout believer in God. She'd had no sexual relations. And this was her setting. But then God sends Gabriel onto the scene. And as I said, things were going to radically change for Mary. She was going to be given an invitation to participate in the extraordinary. And if her answer was yes, it would change her life forever. And I stress that if her answer was yes, very specific, uh, on purpose. Because I think one of the struggles for us when we examine the life of Mary and this text and what takes place is to find any relevancy for us. Because we can say, yes, I get it, Mary is a misfit based on the definition that we've been using during our sermon series. And, and I can see in my life, I'm a misfit too. I'm ordinary. Uh, I don't think people expect extraordinary things from me. Uh, maybe you carry some heavy baggage from your past. You're the black sheep. You're the square peg trying to fit into the round holes. We get that. But the kind of invitation to participate in the extraordinary that Mary received, we don't expect that kind of invitation. And what I want you to start thinking about, even at the outset of our message, is this. Maybe you got that wrong. That maybe God has invited you to participate in the extraordinary. But the problem is, unlike Mary, our response has been one of unwillingness. And so I want you just to park that in the back of your brain. And we're going to come to that in, in a little bit. Uh, but that's the situation that we find. And so we've read verses 26 and 27, and then we come to verse 28. And, and we can only surmise what Mary was doing. Uh, maybe she had one of those wedding planner books, scrolls, I guess, that... Uh, brides-to-be like to write all their notes in. Maybe she was sitting at a table and filling in some thoughts about what her wedding day was going to be like. Or maybe she was doing chores for her parents. She was doing laundry or, or, or fetching water. But we don't know what she was doing. But all of a sudden, she finds herself in the presence of an angel. And in verse 28, it reads, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. All of a sudden, Gabriel is there and, hey, Mary, how are you doing? You're in the Lord's good books. And he has chosen you for a special task. And as we continue reading, it makes sense what Mary's response initially is. In verse 29, it says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered, which could mean pondered or reasoned with herself, what kind of greeting this might be. Is this really an angel? What does this angel want with me? Highly favored. 
I'm sure Mary looked at her setting. A nobody, an ordinary person, poor, no great future aspirations. I'm highly favored. Is this what highly favored looks like? I've found favor with God. I'm in God's good books, but I I know all my shortcomings. I know my faults. I know where I slip up. And so Mary is is reasoning, dialoguing with herself, but, but Gabriel jumps right back in and says in verse 30, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be a great He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So Mary's this young teenager in love, planning her wedding, planning her future life with her poor husband. And now an angel has appeared and said, not only are you in God's good books and he's got a special task that he's chosen you for, but you are going to become pregnant and you are going to give birth. And not just birth to anyone, you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Wow. Wow. What an invitation to participate in the extraordinary. Real extraordinary. And all I can think when I think of what Mary has just heard is Mary, welcome to the world where God's favorite strategy is to use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And we can read this story and we can hear this story and you could be listening to me tell this story and that passes right through our mind. Because it's so much easier for us to think that God uses extraordinary people to do extraordinary things. God uses the super Christians to do super extraordinary things. He uses the ones who are comfortable to be in front of people to do extraordinary things. He uses those who have read the Bible from front to back numerous times and understand theology. That's who he uses to do extraordinary things. He doesn't use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And to that, if you still believe that after the last two months of our misfits, You need to go back and watch those messages, listen to those messages again, because we've seen over and over from the Old Testament and the New Testament that God takes misfits and he saves them and he changes their life and he uses them to change other people's lives and to move his kingdom forward and to fulfill his purposes and to bring glory to his name. And I could sit there and list all the people from Scripture And yet I know some of us in our own lives know that this is true because God has used ordinary people to do extraordinary things in our lives. I gave my life to Jesus at the age of six at Crusaders Bible Club Club camp. 
through the ministry of a faithful elderly lady, Mrs. Nelson, who regularly got up at campfire and shared the gospel with us campers sitting around the campfire. For a number of my years in Sunday school, my Sunday school teacher was the church janitor of the church that I went to in Toronto. I rededicated my life to Jesus at the age of 16 through the ministry of a former substance abuser. As a a young uh, man, I was encouraged at my church in Toronto to be content regardless of the circumstances because of the example of a crippled up old lady that was at our church. I say old, I don't even know how old she was. She couldn't walk. She had difficulty talking. And yet the youth and the college and careers enjoyed so much to go to her apartment and to sing her Christmas carols and to bring her baked goods and to just sit with her. And I used to marvel when I go there because we'd get about three minutes into a conversation with her and her phone would ring. And I go, someone must be phoning, you know, just to, to make sure she's okay. But it wasn't. It was people in her apartment building calling so that she would pray for them. And this wasn't just once it happened. It happened all the time. So in my own life, God has used ordinary people to do extraordinary things so that my life would be impacted and that my life would be changed. So don't doubt for a moment that God won't use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The passage continues on. Verses 34 through 37. And I find, it, I find I chuckle at verse 34. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? I, I told you not too long ago about being in birth class with Allison before Lauren was born and, and uh, watching this movie that was what took place from conception to birth uh, in the, inside the, the body of the, the woman and, and going up to the teacher of the class, not realizing that she was a Christian, saying, okay, I don't believe how anyone can't believe that there's a God because this is nothing short of miraculous. Like, like childbirth is a miracle and how that all took place. And that's true. But what happens to Mary even tops that? And I don't know about you, and it's hard for me being a guy to imagine being in Mary's shoes, but my response and my initial thoughts, if the angel had told me that I was going to conceive and, and give birth to a child, uh, and yet I was a female and, and a virgin, and I, 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 would, I would argue, I would want a lot of clarification, I would probably want to see some credentials, like who are you and why are you in my house? Maybe I call 911. And yet look what Mary says. Of all the things that she could do, Mary brings up one small technical difficulty. How will this be? I'm a virgin. And so Gabriel responds. And you know, if you are looking for a six-inch thick uh, biological dissertation on everything you need to know about how the virgin birth worked, you're not going to find one. Because this is it. 
what Gabriel says to Mary. Mary says, how will this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will, to be born will be called the Son of God. And so what Gabriel tells us is that Mary will become pregnant and it's a result of the divine intervention of God that the agent of the virgin birth is the Holy Spirit. The means of the, holy, uh, of the virgin birth is overshadowing. And that word overshadowing, that's the same word that we find in the Old Testament where we see God's visible presence uh, over the tabernacle. And so that's the means of the virgin birth. And the result of the virgin birth is the birth of Jesus. And so you can understand why many people are just scratching their head about the virgin birth. Because it is so unbelievable for our human minds to comprehend that many have just concluded it's not believable. Because it can't be right. It mustn't really be what Luke was trying to tell us. And so they water down the virgin birth. Or they change the virgin birth. Or they just write it out of the account. But Luke can't be more clear. Gabriel can't be more clear. The virgin birth isn't a hoax. It's not just an unnecessary miracle of the Christmas story. The virgin birth is a necessity. And uh, Dr. James Kennedy uh, does some fantastic work talking about this. And I'd rather just read uh, a paragraph from him than for me to butcher what, what he says. Um, Without the virgin birth, there would be no Christmas at all. It's a necessity, but from human standards, an impossibility. So why was it necessary? And Kennedy goes on to summarize how central the virgin birth is to the Christian faith. He says, if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then the New Testament narratives are false and unreliable. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he was mistaken about his paternity. He constantly declared himself to be the son of God. And he declared that God was his father. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, then he was not the son of God, but merely the illegitimate child of a sinful liaison between a Jewish peasant girl and an unknown man. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, then Christ was not born of the seed of woman, but of the seed of man. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, then he cannot be the divine redeemer because the sacrifice for sin must be perfect. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, we have no savior. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, we are still in our sins and without forgiveness. If Jesus were not born of a virgin, we have no hope after death. That's why Luke and Gabriel want us to understand that Mary was a virgin and through the divine intervention of God, she became pregnant and would give birth to Jesus Christ because the virgin birth was absolutely necessary. And, and, and I understand that, how do we wrap our heads around that? It, it, it's, it's impossible. But you know, there's, there's one thing that I, we can be positive of. And that was that the day that Gabriel bumped into Mary 
Mary did not wake up that day expecting that she was going to receive that invitation, that she was going to hear that she was going to be pregnant and give birth uh, to the Son of God. That just was something that she uh, was not uh, expecting. The one thing that I kept coming back to as I studied this passage and I was thinking about what I wanted to share this morning was the biggest challenge to me. And I told you to put this in the back of your brain, so now bring it to the front of your brain if that's how it works. It's so difficult for us to see where the application is and how Mary responds to this invitation to participate in the extraordinary because we find it hard to believe that we could ever receive that kind of invitation to the extraordinary ourselves. And I get that, because that's probably usually where I land. But what God has really been convicting me of this week is this. Could it be that the problem with me and maybe some of you is not that God hasn't invited us to participate in the extraordinary, but the problem is that I and maybe you minimize the kind of life that God has called us to. And all you have to do is is flip through Scripture. When we give our life to Jesus, we are adopted into His family. We we, we, We are called His children. Through the blood of Jesus, we can boldly approach the throne of God. We are called to be disciple makers. Going, knowing that the one who is all powerful and has all authority goes with us. That we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. That we are called to be ambassadors. That we are called to be witnesses of the gospel. That we are called to be intercessors. That God, for some mysterious reason, chooses to act in participation with his children's prayers. And he says, pray. Intercede. And I list all those things and I could have listed more and I know what my reaction is more often than not is I hear all those things and I go, hmm. When God's intention is that we hear those things and we go, wow, that's what God wants to do and in and, and through me, ordinary me, Seemingly unqualified me? Someone who, humanly speaking, most people wouldn't expect anything really fantastic from me. But that's what God wants to do in me? Wow. And so maybe the problem isn't that God hasn't called us, invited us to participate in the extraordinary our problem is that we haven't been willing or we, have, we haven't noticed or we haven't grasped the greatness and the extraordinary life that God has called us to. We finally come to Mary's response. And many people think that there was probably a little bit of time between verses 37 uh, and verses 38. 
Gabriel said his part, and now he's waiting for Mary to respond. Like how one person wrote, uh, Mary struck Gabriel as hardly old enough to have a child at all, let alone this child. But he'd been entrusted with a message to give her, and he gave it. He told her what the child was to be named and who he was to be and something about the mystery that was to come upon her. You mustn't be afraid, Mary, he said. And as he said it, he only hoped she wouldn't notice that beneath his great golden wings, he himself was trembling with fear to think that the whole future of creation now hung on the answer of a teenager. And yet we move to verse 38 and we hear Mary's response. Perhaps the greatest declaration of faith that we find in Scripture. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. It's important for us to understand as we look at Mary's story and we consider response and we, we, we try to glean how this can apply to us and the relevancy of it. It's important to understand a few things. One is this, Mary didn't know everything. Are we saying that song, Mary, did you know? I think there was a lot of things Mary didn't know. She didn't know what the future held. The, 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 the roadmap of her future wasn't laid before us. When, when she's in the temple with Jesus and Simeon says what he says, it says that, that they marveled at what Simeon said. That somehow their little lamb was going to become the sacrificial lamb. I'm sure Mary had doubts. She had questions. She probably had concerns, but Mary believed and she trusted. Even when the facts didn't seem to line up, she still trusted God and she submitted her life to him. And that's a key word, submission. Mary realized that she wasn't her own. She submitted her life and and her future to God. And understand this, saying yes to an invitation to participate in the extraordinary from God will often come with a cost. And we could go on forever talking about the costs that uh, were involved as far as uh, Mary was concerned. Uh, It could have cost her her relationship with Joseph. It was going to cost her being uh, the the butt end of gossip and scandal and, and, and... ridicule and and shame. 33 years later, she was going to be sitting at the foot of the cross watching this very baby die on a cross. And, And we know she didn't understand all of it that was taking place. But she was obedient to God's invitation and she submitted herself. And then the final thing in a verse in this text that we often miss out at Christmas time. But in the actual language that Luke writes in, it's actually the emphasis of this text. It's right in verse 37. For no word from God will ever fail. Your translation may say nothing is impossible for God. And the word nothing is the emphasis of this paragraph. Nothing is impossible with God. 
He wants Elizabeth to become pregnant with John the Baptist. It'll be so. He wants Mary to become pregnant, even though she's a virgin with the Son of God. It will be so. God wants to use you and me, who are just ordinary people, to do extraordinary things. If we say yes, he can do it. Because nothing is impossible with God.